interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up the recently released Office of Comptroller of the Currency, that's OCC for you inside baseball fans, uh, guidance around third-party risks. So, Matt, uh, first of all, uh, welcome, and uh, can we assume you are healthy as of this recording? Uh, Yeah, good morning, Tom, or good afternoon. Um, I am healthy, uh, although the number of coronavirus cases in Boston is climbing rapidly right now. Uh, but at the least, uh, for now, today, I seem to be good in my self-imposed quarantine in my home office, where I have actually been in self-imposed quarantine since the last three years I've been doing radical compliance. So I'm fine. Well, Matt, you wrote a uh, blog post this week on the OCC guidance entitled some good guidance on third-party risk and usually you have a fairly pithy title but i thought this title was actually one of your most succinct ever because it encapsulated for me what this occ guidance had so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the background sure so uh the title was just says it all some good guidance on third-party risk and that's all this was uh this came out from the occ on march 5th And uh, the OCC is the primary regulator for the country's community banks. Um, But for all you compliance listeners who are not in banking or in community banks, do stay tuned because what the OCC had been talking about with how you evaluate third parties and manage vendor risk really does have a lot of applicability for any type of third-party oversight for any company. So even if you're involved in anti-corruption or you are not touching financial services and banking at all, whatever your industry is, there are still a lot of basic principles about what your third-party due diligence capabilities should produce, uh, how you would handle fourth parties, and so on and so forth, uh, that is well worth your time. So do find this guidance and uh, then give it a read. It's easy to read. It's a bunch of frequently asked questions plus answers. I think there's about 25 of them in total, but um, very good, pithy stuff. Most of it very relevant to any compliance officer of any stripe. Matt, we've both been in the compliance arena for 10 plus years and uh, third-party risks still are one of the highest and it's still one of the things that compliance practitioners talk about at uh, literally from the top conferences down to informal gatherings. Did you find this to be uh, not simply or perhaps uh, always good to review for for compliance practitioners, or did it provide that plus additional information that we don't typically see from a government uh, announcement such as this guidance? Well, you know, I uh, a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, certainly this is such an important issue, such a chronic and constant issue for compliance professionals that is probably always good for all of us if we just reread some good best practices on third-party risk from time to time. 
Um, but uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of what the OCC started with was just what your due diligence capabilities should be able to do. Like, what's the thing that you want to have at the end of performing due diligence so that you can make some decisions? Uh, and a lot of it, I probably will sound familiar after I rattle it off, but there's four points. You know, understand the risk that the vendor poses, develop mitigating controls to reduce those risks, um, make thoughtful decisions that, yes, this vendor is really the best provider for what we want and that what we can find. So we're going to use this vendor anyways, even if the vendor can't give us all the assurance we want. Um, we have decided, therefore, that because what they provide is so important, we're still going to go with them. You know, what's the thought process to get to that decision? Um, and then document all of the effort that you did to get those first three bullet points. Um, and really, a lot of that is just the same stuff in the FCPA guidance from the Justice Department from 2012, phrased maybe in a slightly different way, phrased for a slightly more focus on what services the vendors provide to you. But, um, you know, the OCC foremost is interested in sustainable business models for the banks because they cannot afford to have banks start failing and going belly up. So for them, it's a lot, when they say third party, they're thinking vendors who provide valuable services to you. But the principle of what due diligence do you want to perform is just as well for a local agent or a reseller or a business partner or anybody else. Um, the FCPA guidance would say something like, you know, is this vendor or third party suitable for the services that you're actually looking for? Um, have you documented your thought processes? And a lot of this gets at what a risk-based approach is. As much as we all would like to do a nice cookie-cutter approach and be done with it and forget it, tough, that's not the way the world works in compliance, you really need to think through what are the risks of this particular vendor or third party. Let me look at all these risks. Let me try and get the information from the vendor as much as I can, and then let me still make the best decision possible and document my thought process. That's been true in FCPA. And that's just what the OCC said for vendor risks, pretty much the same thing. Um, so that's the refresher stuff. But, Tom, I, I got a whole lot more here. I think that is new stuff I don't usually see in FCPA world. So I can tear into that, too, if you want. Well, and I was actually going to ask you about that, starting with a word on fourth parties, but how that intersects with what you humbly call Kelly's Law of Third-Party Risk Management. <laughs> so, yes, the, what we would call fourth parties in FCPA corporate compliance world, the OCC calls subcontractor risk. Um, you, the bank, you work with a vendor, they provide a service, and you are concerned about what part of that service they subcontract to somebody else you don't know. So to you, the bank or the company, that subcontractor is a fourth party. Um and the OCC spends a fair bit of time talking about how to address subcontractor risk and their way of approaching it, which I don't often hear in FCPA best practices, is that no, you don't need to go out and find all the fourth parties and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. You don't need to assess all of them yourself. But part of your due diligence of your third parties should be an evaluation of their oversight of their third parties, which are your fourth parties. Um, now, 
OCC actually gave some specific stuff. Here's what you're never going to hear at an at FCPA conference. I've never heard this. But, for example, you could ask your third party for a SOC 1 Type 2 report. And that is an independent audit of the third party's ability to monitor its subcontractors. Um, I have never heard anybody from the Justice Department or any law firm talk about a, type, a SOC 1 Type 2 report. If they have, let me know, and I will note the time and place. But that's a real practical sort of a thing that you could get from your third party to give you some assurance over the fourth party. While we're on the subject, just to get even weedier, um, do not confuse a SOC 1 report, which looks at a party's ability to manage subcontractors, with a SOC 2 report, uh, which looks at their data security controls. So you could have a SOC 1 and a SOC 2, type 2 reports. There's all sorts of SOC reports of different types. You can do that in a different podcast. But this guidance gets into really some practical ideas about what could you extract from your vendor to give some assurance on fourth-party risk. Um, so what are some of the things that you might want to be asking them about? Uh, are you sure that your contracts with your vendors include clauses where they will report to you any incidents such as a subcontractor suffering a breach that includes your data, the location of the subcontractors who might be processing your data, um, the names of the subcontractors, not necessarily the employees, but at least the corporate name of the subcontractor if they are processing your confidential data. And then another point that I also rarely hear from uh, Justice Department or FCPA people. Does the subcontractor provide critical services to your vendor, especially if your vendor is providing critical services to you? So if that domino falls in the fourth ring, then suddenly will that knock down the domino in your third-party ring, and now the domino hits your company in the face? Um, that's the sort of stuff that you want to try to get at with fourth-party risk. And OCC goes into a fair bit of detail about how you can engineer your third-party risk management program to try to get to fourth-party risk in a disciplined way without really driving you crazy because you're never going to get good assurance on fourth parties. But you can make sure your third parties get it on their third parties and it flows back to you and so on and so forth. But then, Tom, to your last question there, that also drives at what I have called Kelly's Law of Third-Party Risk Management. The better your firm is at managing third-party risk, the more attractive you will be as a third-party to others. So if you can quell all of your third-party risks, you are quelling fourth-party risk for your customers. And we just spent five minutes talking about how that's such a difficult thing to do. So if you can solve it, you are going to make yourself a more attractive business partner. That is why good third-party risk management is not just good regulatory compliance. It is a good strategic business advantage. So take the time to try and get it and do it right at your business. That's what I would say if I were a compliance officer trying to pitch this to other senior executives. But there was even more, Matt. Uh, there was some guidance on roles and responsibilities and uh, some of the intersections of technology in the third-party risk management life cycle. What did you find there? There, there was a bit there. Um, I will admit that the one thing the OCC guidance didn't go into a lot of detail about was how you manage vendor risk at scale. 
it was very good about how you would want to perform due diligence and risk management with a vendor right in front of you and what's the assurance you want to get from them. But how do you scale that up so that there's a whole program that can manage 10,000 vendors who are selling to your company? That's not what uh, the OCC guidance got into too much. Um, But you would need to start thinking about, okay, within my company, especially if you are not in banking where a lot of this is very clearly defined already. But if you're not in banking and you're thinking, how would I manage vendor risk at scale? This is going to be something that compliance plays some role, internal audit plays some role, corporate risk management plays some role. It could be different people. Uh, It could be that what works at one company does not work at another. Maybe risk will do something at your business that audit would do at a different one. You might not have a risk management function. Maybe it's done by audit. Maybe it's done by compliance. Maybe they're integrated. Um, You know, so say, for example, um, in some cases, regulators will force the issue about who oversees what Um, At financial firms, you're supposed to have an internal auditor, and they are supposed to be independent, so they're not going to do a lot of operational risk management on a day-to-day basis. Somebody has to. Uh, Is that going to be an operational risk manager? Is it going to be the compliance officer? Is it going to be the first line of defense people managing themselves with close oversight from compliance? You need to think about that. What is the board's role in overseeing all of this? Again, that can vary. Uh, In the banking world, OCC rules do say the board of directors should approve contracts with vendors that provide critical services to your firm. Um, You don't really see something that specific, I think, in FCPA land. Uh, The FCPA best practices say that the board bears ultimate responsibility for ensuring good third-party risk management, but there's not as much specifics, I don't think, in exactly what does the board do, exactly what do different types of um, corporate executives and business functions, who oversees what. I don't know that there's going to be any good universal answer for non-bank companies about all of that, but um, that's the sort of thing that you'll need to think through as you're reading this guidance. A lot of it makes so much sense in the specific, and then you need to start thinking, how is this going to work with 10,000 vendors? How am I going to systematize this? How am I going to take these principles here and fit them into the compliance or risk management program we already have? Are we going to change our policies? If we are, who's going to do that? Who's going to break the bad news to the business units? Um, is internal audit going to assess my success here? Yes, they should. Do they actually? You know, you're going to have to find your way forward on all of that. Um, But that's the one big takeaway I would encourage people to think about as they're reading the OCC guidance. Think about how do I make this work as a program, not just the really good specific thoughts about good vendor risk management and what it should produce. Matt, when I read this document last week, uh, or I probably should say when I reread this document in preparation for our podcast today, I actually looked at it with a little bit different eye of business continuity. And I was wondering if yeah. uh, uh, if you are going to be uh, writing about or posting about the business continuity issues we're currently under from any other federal uh, guidance from any other federal agencies. Uh, well, as it so happens, Tom, um, FINRA, which is the agency that regulates broker-dealer firms, they just put out a new bulletin 
uh, on Monday specific to pandemic risk. Um, and it was basically an update of older guidance from 2009, which was the last time we had uh, H1N1 was looked like it might become a pandemic. And FINRA had put out some guidance then about its rule, rule 4370 for broker dealers, uh, that requires them to draft and maintain a business continuity plan. And that rule has been on the books for quite a while. This latest guidance from Monday is more about <laughs> here's how you should think through pandemic-related issues as you are reviewing your business continuity plan, which you are supposed to have. Um, and again, same sort of thing with uh, it's – I get it that it's a financial services regulator. You might think that this doesn't apply to you, and certainly you know, you don't have to worry about the details of Rule 4370 unless you're a broker-dealer, but – the points that this guidance is raising about how would you consider the risks that of how you respond to the pandemic and how how are you performing a risk assessment? How are you going to take mitigation steps? Um, there's a lot of good stuff in the FINRA guidance, even for people who are not broker dealers. Uh, just one quick example. Um, sure, everybody thinks, well, we're going to have to have everyone work from home. Okay, very good. But your cybersecurity risks then go through the roof because everybody's working on home networks or maybe they have confidential information that they're keeping on their home document or home computer and it might not be available to others. Or maybe there's going to be more need for multi-factor authentication because you actually are not sure who's that person at the other end of the terminal because you can't see them anymore because they're not in the office with you. So – what are the steps you would take to respond to the pandemic? And then what new risks get introduced by taking those pandemic steps? And then how am I going to mitigate those? That's really the thought exercise you're going to have to engage in if you haven't already. And FINRA does walk through those, some of those examples in pretty good detail with this new guidance from Monday. So that's going to be on the radical compliance fairly soon. But it is interesting to note that we now have two banking regulators within the space of a week putting out guidance about how to continue your operations in the event of mass disruption. Um, clearly, FINRA is thinking about this with the pandemic. I know OCC is also thinking about it. The word pandemic does not appear in the OCC guidance, but the OCC guidance is all about making sure your vendors are reliable so you're reliable so the banking system doesn't go belly up. Um, they're very concerned about operational resilience in the face of severe disruption, and I, I think it's just striking that we're seeing two outbursts of that within the space of a week uh, as uh, coronavirus is sweeping around the country here. And uh, clearly, it's something that weighs on people's minds. There's a lot that they could get at by get you could get by reading this these documents. So I would encourage people to do it. Matt, and if I could add, from February 19th, when the SEC and PCA will be warned of the impact of the coronavirus on financial reporting, uh, I guess the, one of the key takeaways I've gotten from this podcast is there's really a lot for the compliance practitioner to consider, uh, even in, if we segregate it down to higher little world, but clearly with the financial regulators, the um, capital markets regulators, and the audit regulators all warning about uh the effects and resiliency that people uh, really need to think through this. Yeah, it, it, it's very much a um, diplomatic, polite, 
kick in the rear that you need to be thinking much more about operational resilience, which is not the same as operational risk management. Um, resilience is going to be how do you endure after all of your risk management controls fail and the virus hits anyways, or the power goes out, or the hurricane hits, or the vendor conks out, or whatever. After it hits the fan, then how do you propose to keep going on? And these documents are giving some very good food for thought for all compliance and audit professionals, regardless of your, your business sector. Well, Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but we will see what next week brings us. All right. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'm going to link to Matt's post in the show notes, so be sure and check that out. Also, check out his FINRA article, which will be coming out after this podcast post as well. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week when we take up another topic of Compliance Into the Weeds. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.